Hello and welcome. This is Karen Motokaitis and you are listening to How She Really Does It, where inspiration and possibility meet on KDRT 95.7 FM. I believe there are many ways to live life. I believe there are many possibilities for us to take and journeys to take. We can learn from others to see what is possible for ourselves. There are possibilities for all of us, not just, one, the, not just the ones who've acquired great success, but including those of us who have stumbled, lost our way, or only saw closed doors. With this show, maybe you can see a glimmer coming through the windows. I call that the windows of possibility. Each week I bring a guest who represents those possibilities. They too have had their own struggles and uncertainty, yet somehow they have found their way. My guests are an example of what is possible when you continue, when you learn, leap, fall down, and get back up. I invite you into the space so you can ask yourself, if that is possible for them, what is possible for me? Really, ask yourself that. Anger. Do you find yourself angry? Do you want to be, do you want, do you want not to be angry? Do you work hard trying to diminish your anger? Today's guest is Harriet Lerner. She is a practicing clinical psychologist and is best known for her work on the psychology of women, marriage, and family relationships. She is the author of 11 books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Dance of Anger. You may remember Dr. Harriet Lerner when she was a guest here and we talked about sex and relationships from her latest book, Marriage Rules, a manual for the married and the coupled. Today, Harriet will give us insight about our anger and how it can actually help our life, and it is not something to bury. Dr. Lerner, hello and welcome. Oh, delighted to be back. Well, thank you. First off, I would like to talk about the Dance of Anger and just the process you went through to get it published, because I believe there have been, what, five million copies sold as of date? Um, millions, right? Yeah. <laughs> And But it wasn't this easy journey of write the book and here you give it to the publisher. So can you give my listeners a background to your own journey to get it published? Well, my own journey is a story of very good luck is how it started out. I'll tell you about that. And then very, very bad luck and despair. And then ultimately good luck um, all in <laughs> one book. So for how it started out with the good luck, um, I'm going to run through the history of of the Dance of Anger because it's interesting for me to review what I went through to get that book published. So what happened, I I actually had never thought about writing a book, but I was a psychologist at the Menninger Clinic, which was a psychiatric hospital in Topeka, Kansas, and I wrote a little piece about women's anger in an in-house publication called The Menninger Perspective. And somehow, Helen Gurley Brown, who was head of Cosmopolitan Magazine, got her hands on, on this little piece I wrote and called me in my office. You know, I was just a young thing sitting in my office um, making very, very little money And I get a call from Helen Gurley Brown from Cosmopolitan Magazine, and she said to me, would you give us permission to reprint your article about women's anger in Cosmopolitan 
and we will give you $7,000. Oh. Which back then, you know, was like $70,000. So this question was like asking a drowning man if he would like some air, you know. So I said, well, um, yes, you know, how delightful. And um, so they published my little piece in Cosmopolitan Magazine on women's anger. And, I mean, I thought, wow, you know, this is great. I didn't even have to do anything. You know, I just received the call. And then, um, for more good luck, I actually got another call who saw from a publisher in New York who saw the Cosmopolitan article and invited me to write a book on women's anger and said she would give me an advance of $14,000. <laughs> so I thought, wow, you know, it's so easy to be an author. You just sit in a chair in your office and people call you up and they give you money. And um, so that was the very, very good luck part. And then came the bad luck, because what happened is I, I wrote the book on women's anger, and my working, well, I'll talk more about the title later. So I, I wrote the book, and what happened is that the same publisher who invited me um, to do the book fired me. Um, she wasn't happy with the book, and... Then another book on anger came out at the same time, and she fired me, which I didn't even know could happen, nor did I know that when you receive an advance on a book and then the publisher doesn't accept the book, that you have to give that advance back. Ooh. See, I didn't, I didn't read the small print. <laughs> so I was fired, and, um, you know, I was pretty despairing, and I didn't even have the advance to give back because I had built a deck. We had built a deck in the back of our little house in Topeka, Kansas. So then there was a search for another publisher, and I kept writing. I mean, I kept writing and, and revising, and I don't remember how it happened, but the same publisher who fired me saw another popular piece on women's anger that had gotten another little article, like in Ladies' Home Journal, and she rehired me. So she hired me, fired me, rehired me, and then about seven months after that, I got a Dear John letter from her basically firing me again. And what? saying that she really didn't want the book. So she's fired you twice now. She fired me twice. <laughs> I might be the only author who got fired twice from the same publisher. <laughs> I think I am. And at that point, I was very, very despairing. And as my agent tried to, um, to sell the book, to resell the book to another publisher, of course, the word had already gotten out in the publishing world that the book had been uh, rejected, rejected, and that I had, um, you know, been fired twice from a prestigious publisher. So basically, for five years, um, I accumulated enough 
rejection slips to wallpaper the biggest room in my house. Mm-hmm. And it was really very, very depressing. It, it was really, um, it was a terrible time for me. And I don't know what kind of perseverance or stubbornness kept me going. I, I, I think that I had worked so hard on it over so long and so many years that it was easier to keep going. I just decided that I would keep going and write the very best book that I could write. And that was easier than, um, you know, just saying, okay, I'm going to stop. And I do have a lot of perseverance. You can call it perseverance Mm -hmm. or, or stubbornness, but that is a quality that I have. And I always knew that it was a very good book. Um, that I never questioned. So what happened um, is five years of rejection, five years of rewriting and revising my revisions of my revisions. And if any of our listeners write, um, you know, you know that what writing really is is rewriting, you know, and then rewriting your rewriting. So I was doing that, and finally, oh, oh, and I should add one other thing so that um, all of our listeners can light a little candle for me, which is that I did all of this on a typewriter. (laughs) I did not have a computer. This was before the computer. I started in 1979 doing research on the Dance of Anger, and um, I did all of this on a typewriter. So what happened after five years, it had been rejected by every publisher on the planet, and it had been rejected for so long um, that there was some turnover in the publishing houses, meaning some people had left, new people came in. (laughs) And once you get a book um, rejected by a publisher, you cannot submit it again to that publisher, even if the book is very different. Once they've rejected it, um, you can't resubmit. But in this case, as a very last resort, my agent decided to submit um, The Dance of Anger to HarperCollins, which was then Harper and Row, because everyone had changed hands and we didn't tell them that they had rejected it. So they thought they were seeing it for the first time. And a young editor named Janet Goldstein, um, who actually she acquired me and, and Barbara Kingsolver at the same time, she decided that she would publish this book. I I was so happy. And I was also convinced that no one would read the book except for my mother and my five best friends, you know, because I had gotten nothing but rejection letters and not even nice, encouraging rejection letters, but, you know, just rejection letters. So when The Dance of Anger came out, I I had no expectations for it. I, I just wanted this book to um, hold in my hands after five years of pain and suffering and and so forth. Um, and amazingly, this is the book that um, 
became a New York Times bestseller. The Dance of Anger has sold, um, and it's published in 35 languages and has sold millions of books and, you know, put my two boys through college, etc. And today, you know, more than a quarter of a century later, The Dance of Anger is still flying off the shelves. So that's the story when I sum it up of the very good luck that I had, you know, right up front, and then the very bad luck, and then, oh my goodness, you know, I've been so fortunate. My readers have been so wonderful, Um, and... You know, I use the word luck because to write a book or to do anything, you know, it requires talent and it requires tremendous perseverance and motivation and will and the willingness to stay with it. But in the case of a book, it also requires luck. I mean, you know, this book became a huge bestseller and... I have friends and colleagues who have written wonderful books and, you know, for reasons of luck or bad timing, et cetera, they, the book doesn't fly off the shelves. So, um, you know, thanks to the moon and stars and grace and to all of my readers and um, the millions of people who have bought The Dance of Anger and shared it with their friends. and So that's the story. Well, that's such a great story, and I appreciate you sharing that because uh, so many of my listeners, right, whether, and I do have a lot of listeners who are who are writers or authors and, you know, people, women who are wanting to create a certain life for themselves. And so often when they hit stumbling blocks, they make it a verdict that it's not possible or they're not good enough. But for what whatever reason you chose to not make it a verdict when you were fired the first time. And then even the second time you kept doing the work. And I'm just fascinated to know, like what was in your mindset that you didn't let fear overcome you um, and you were able to push through? I, I never felt fear. Um, I, I felt anger. <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt a lot of anger. And the reason I felt anger and also puzzlement is I never lost faith in the book. I mean, no matter what the rejection letter said, I knew that this was a very good book. That did not make it easier. And in a funny way, it made it harder because I knew that it was so unfair. It felt so unfair that no one wanted to publish it. And there was a while that I was so angry and depressed about it that it was very hard for me to um, go into a bookstore because I'd go in the bookstore and I would see all these icky self-help books Mm -hmm. that wasn't, they weren't as good as my book in my view. Mm -hmm. And that in itself was very, very painful. So I felt anger and I felt depressed and I felt sort of the world was against me and it wasn't fair. Um, and I just kept going. I, I just decided, and I kept going on my typewriter, you know, cutting and pasting with the scissors and scotch tape. Um, I kept going because the pain of quitting, when I put so much into it, 
was greater than the pain of continuing. I just decided I would make it the best book I could make it, and then I would have done everything that I could have done, and it would get published or not get published. I mean, I never dreamed uh, what would happen with this book, the, the success of this book. I, I still can't wrap my brain around it, um, given what I went through. So it wasn't fear. I just had to get through anger and, and the, you know, the, the sense of injustice, mm-hmm. you know, about it. And uh, the world is not fair. Mm-hmm. You know, the world is is really not fair, but I decided I would keep going, so I would do my part. And when you say that the pain of giving up was worse than the pain of, of, of persevering, can you clarify that a bit? When you were persevering, were you still, there was still anger there? Was there still anger there and frustration? Well, when I'm writing my focus narrows to the writing. So I'm not sitting there while I'm writing feeling angry, mm-hmm. but I could sure wake up three in the morning, you know, <laughs> as you know how the brain wakes you up in three in the morning and you sort of um, ruminate about past grievances or you worry about future catastrophes or maybe your brain makes to-do lists if you're lucky. But those are really the only three things the anxious brain does at three in the morning. Um, you know, so I would have times when, when I was angry and very down, I, I, you know, I just had to keep going. I just had to, to finish. I had put years into it and I kept going. And now looking back, cause you started this process in 1979. So if I've done my math correctly, that was 33 years ago. Right, amazing. Right. And mm-hmm. now if you look back at that journey that you went through of the, you know, where you had this good luck and, and open, like a door of possibility opened up for you that maybe you didn't even realize existed. And then the door kicked you out a couple times, right? Um, and then the five-year struggle that ensued to get your book finally published. Do you look back and go, wow, I th- I'm thankful that I went through that five years of struggle? Actually, yes. That's an interesting question. I am thankful that I went through the five years of struggle in retrospect um, because over those five years, I was learning a lot. I was um, changing my theoretical perspective, and it actually ended up, because I was rewriting and writing for five years, The Dance of Anger ended up as a better book a much better book than if it had been published right away. And I think that's true about a lot of our failures and despairing the the bad things that happen to us. Later down the road, we can look back and see that something actually good came out of that. But when we're in the black hole, it's impossible to see. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting question. And, you know, it's interesting, the woman who, the head of the publishing house, who hired, fired, rehired, refired me, she also gave me some difficult but very good advice. And I did take the feedback. 
And the most important feedback she gave me, see, I had been an academic writer. I was publishing scholarly articles. Uh And when you're a psychologist (laughs) and you're publishing in the professional journals, you don't even use the word I. You know, Mm -hmm. you use the word the author concludes. And um, you put things in the most obscure, uh, (laughs) convoluted language as possible so that your colleagues will think you're brilliant. And she kept saying to me, Get off your high horse, connect with your readers, be a real person, put yourself in the book, which went against all of my training as a therapist and academic writer. And she was correct. So I was also able to to be open to criticism. And um, I mean, I wasn't very open to being fired, but I... You know, I, I did make it a much better book over those five years. So, um, yeah, you know, that was the silver lining in the cloud of despair because rejection rejection is really awful, you know? I mean, whether it's that someone breaks up with you or you don't get the job or, you know, your book is turned down, it's it's so awful, Um you know, and, and everyone wants to be shielded from rejection or to put up some kind of shield or, I don't know, wear a wetsuit or not let it affect you so much. But it does affect us, and it affects us in a way that we think nothing's going to work for us, nothing ever, ever. We'll never write again. We'll never have another relationship. We'll never get back on our feet again. Um, so the rejections were, were terrible, terrible. But in the end, it's a better book that I had to rewrite it for five years on the typewriter. <laughs> I don't. I don't think my boys even know what a typewriter is. You know. <laughs> and speaking of which, right? You must have been a a young mom to be doing this, writing this book, and also having your practice, your private practice. So it sounds like you might have been juggling a lot during this time period. Well, I was chuckling a lot because I was working um, for 30 years. I was a staff psychologist at the Menninger Clinic, a psychiatric hospital. And um, actually, I, I remember my, maybe it was my second son, Ben, saying to his little, he was like five years old or six years old, or, you know, he said something like, uh, you know, my mom worked on this book my whole life. <laughs> and um, if you think of what, some, of what a child learns in the first five years of life, it's pretty amazing. You know, writing a book is like nothing compared to going from a scrawling infant in diapers to a, you know, walking, talking person who's telling your friends about your mom's experience in the publishing world. But yeah, I had kids and I had work, um, and um, I had a well. One way I was very lucky, which is that the hospital, the psychiatric hospital I worked at, let me work the number of hours I wanted to, because I am no kind of superwoman. Mm-hmm. So I could cut down. You know, I was not working a forty-hour week, and. Um, I would just write in the mornings. I would just write every morning. Mm-hmm. 
and and you would protect that time to write. Yeah, I would protect that time. And then just before we go, because we will talk about anger, but one final thing that um, I think a lot of the listeners can resonate with, especially in the state of the economy, right? You were a young person who, you know, had this large advance, that $14,000, and then when you got fired, they expected it back. How did that not trigger fears for you or... You know, where did you have concerns or figuring out how you were going to pay it back? How, I guess my question is, how did that not shut you down? Because that can really shut a lot of people down when they have big financial situations. I think that it didn't shut me down. Well, first of all, you know, I had spent the money building this deck. And my reaction when she fired me and... I was supposed to give this money back. I mean, I spent it in other ways, too. I did not buy a $14,000 deck, you know. But I spent the money. But my reaction is I wanted to take a piece from my deck, a piece of wood, and just smack her with it. And I think because I was angry, she didn't handle the firing well either. She, She wasn't kind. She wasn't direct in her communications. And it came out of the blue. And... And I think that when you're angry, um, anger will erase things like fear and, um, or at least it did for me, or guilt, you know, guilt, which women are so good at, that, that I was mainly angry. And I didn't worry so much about the money in part because um, I was very young. Mm-hmm. And when I was young, for whatever reason, I didn't worry about money. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we all have places where our worry energy lands. And I grew up in a family that was very poor. And money, my mother, you know, every bit of clothing she bought for herself and for me was from a thrift shop. And she would walk five miles to buy damaged fruit and save 10 cents on it. And I grew up in a home with so much panic about money that somehow, you know, I must have decided very early um, that I was not going to worry about money. And I never did, you know, even when I should have. But that doesn't mean I didn't worry. It just means my worry energy went to other things, you know, like the health of my children or you know, that they would be kidnapped or run over by a drunk driver or, you know, the things I would worry about. Um, But it wasn't money, so I didn't worry about money. Interesting. Well, so now I'd like to talk to you about, you know, the dance of anger and about how anger can be the road to you, right, to oneself. Right. And and I think that is so eye-opening because – you know, don't you think that a lot of women look at its anger as a bad thing to have? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. And when I started writing The Dance of Anger, the taboos against women, women's anger are, were very, very strong. I mean, women were supposed to be the nurturers and the soothers and, and the steadiers of rock boats. And if you were a woman, it was okay to get angry on behalf of someone more helpless than yourself, like mothers against drunk driving or, you know, but 
specifically anger at men was so taboo and um that's still there i mean in the, if you think about the language we speak that women who get angry at men are called witches or bitches or hags and eggs shrews strident castrating ball breaking man hating um so women were not supposed to get angry that you know your very femininity and being a good person was put in question so it was very taboo and anger is a very important emotion for two reasons one is that anger is a vehicle for change um individual change social change you look at the civil rights movement the women's movement you know anger can motivate people um to fight on our own behalf or on behalf of justice whether it's in your marriage or with your mother or you know in the world and also anger helps us to define who we are it can help us to to know you know this is what i think this is what i feel these are the things i will and will not do you know this is the limits of my tolerance so anger is a very important um emotion and having said these noble things about anger i also have to add that, that usually it doesn't work that way we don't use anger as a vehicle for change and to really define ourselves clearly and that's why i wrote the book because women and men were doing two very dysfunctional things with their anger which were what are the two dysfunctional things well the two dysfunctional things and it's interesting because my working title for the dance of anger when i was working on it over the 5 years i called it nice ladies and bitches a woman's <laughs> guide to anger and nice ladies and bitches captures the two dysfunctional things that we do with our anger so in the nice lady category which is culturally prescribed for women in this category we give in we go along we accommodate we don't rock the boat we avoid anger and conflict at all costs and what's really important about this category the nice lady category is it's not just anger and fighting that we avoid we avoid making any clear statement of self like listen i see it differently let me tell you how i see it we avoid um clearly defining ourselves if we're afraid that the other person um is going to get reactive and we're going to disrupt the predictable security of the relationship so what happens in this category is that the person we give up too much self too much of our beliefs and values um and priorities get compromised under relationship pressures so that's the nice lady category and then the bitch category um and this is the second dysfunctional thing that we do with our anger is that we get angry with ease but getting angry is getting nowhere 
So we end up in endless cycles of fighting and complaining and blaming that lead to no constructive resolution or even that makes things worse. And by the way, we do both of these things. Like we might accommodate and distance and be silent with one person and we may, you know, engage in ineffective fighting with another person. But these are the two categories that get us into trouble and we all do them. And so um, we make the mistake of using anger and then we get in these cycles. And instead, what can we do with our anger to help us get to know us ourselves or help us to get clear? Well, it's important to recognize, first of all, that anger, I mean, anger is simply an emotion. No one enjoys feeling angry. But it's an emotion, and we need to pay attention to it. Simply venting anger when we're feeling emotionally intense doesn't help. And in fact, if you think about the two categories, the nice lady and the the bitch category, they look different. Mm -hmm. I mean, these two people would look very different. But really, it's the same because the real issues are not identified and addressed, and the woman is left feeling helpless and powerless, and nothing changes. Mm -hmm. Because if you fight ineffectively or you're trying to change the other person or, you know, you actually just protect the status quo because nothing is going to change. So one of the first things that we need to do is to calm ourselves down. Um, you're not going to think clearly when you're angry. You're not going to think clearly in the midst of a tornado. And it's very important to be able to think about our feelings so that we can make wise decisions about how and when and if we're going to say what to whom. And it can be very complex to even sort out you know, what is the real issue? That's one thing you have to do. You know, what is the real issue? Because we fight over a lot of pseudo-issues. And um, also venting anger doesn't change the pattern from which our anger springs. So the dance of anger really helps people not only to clarify what the real issue is, but to understand that venting your anger isn't going to help, that you, I mean, it may help sometimes, but or offer some sense of relief, or it's just natural or necessary. Um, but you really have to change your part in the dance that's bringing you pain. And getting self-focused, getting, um, getting to the place where you're being thoughtful about your part in in the relationship dance, that is a very, very big step because we ref- when we're angry or anxious, we get over-focused on what the other person's doing to us and not doing for us, and we get under-focused on our own creative options to really move differently 
and to do something different in that relationship. So there are a lot of, of challenges here. Mm-hmm. And, and with that, usually when we're in a place of anger, isn't it a form of ineffective communication when we are blaming or trying to change the other person that we believe is causing our anger? Yes, trying to change the other person. Um, you know, of course, we all want to change the other person. It's a perfectly natural and understandable impulse because we know that they are 98% of the problem. Even if you're 2% of the problem, that's the only part that you can change. And... Um, you know, they're, they're, it's very interesting about humans because even rats in a maze will change their behavior if they hit a dead end, say, three times. Mm-hmm. But in this regard, humans behave less intelligently than laboratory animals because if you're doing something with your anger that's not working, you know, you're lecturing to your kid or you're pursuing your distant husband or you're trying to use logic to reason with your mother. Um, If you're doing something that's not working, do humans then observe that, stop doing that, and do something different? No. You know, we will keep on doing more of the same. We'll do it louder. We'll do it... um, more frequently. So really being being able to observe that what you're doing is not leaving you feeling better in the long run. You know, it may in the short run, but it's not changing anything in the long run. And understanding that you cannot change another person, that you can only change your own steps in the dance, that's a very... Uh, that's a very big insight. Would you get a lot of resistance to that concept? <laughs> um, I don't get a lot of resistance to the concept that you need to change your own part in the dance. The resistance comes up in actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And not only doing it, but holding to a new position. Um when the counter moves start rolling in. I I mean, I can give you an example. That'd be great. One of the examples I have in the Dance of Anger is a woman named Barbara who called me on the phone to tell me that she was canceling her work. I was giving a workshop with a colleague called Talking Straight Mm -hmm. and Fighting Fair. It was about women's anger. And she said she was canceling her registration, that she couldn't come because her husband wouldn't let her go. And I said, really, what was his objection? And she said, you. And I said, oh. And she said, you know, he said that you were a radical women's liber and the workshop wasn't (laughs) worth the money. And she said to me, but I fought with him. You know, I argued with him and I told him that you're a, you know, well-known psychologist and the workshop was certainly worth the money, but I couldn't convince him. She said his final answer was no. And then she said, she added, 
but at least he agreed I needed some help with my anger because I behaved like such a bitch. So I hung up and I thought about that call. And that is a very interesting phone call. Because even though that may seem a little extreme to our listeners, you know, that she canceled the workshop because her husband wouldn't let her go, it's really not extreme. And Mm -hmm. it's a very good example of what we all do. So first of all, she was fighting over a pseudo issue. You know, she was fighting over my qualifications, my credentials, is the workshop worth the money? You know, what do you think the real issue is here? I mean, do you have any thoughts? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. Um, I'm putting you on the spot. You are. And I even read this. What is the real issue? What What do you think the real issue is between Barbara and her husband here? Well... I, I don't think she's clear on what she wants. She's mm-hmm. getting permission mm-hmm. from her husband mm-hmm. and trying to present evidence that, oh, this, you know, Dr. Harriet Lerner is a worthwhile investment of money. Um, it's, it's, a, um, it's an imbalance, I think, of uh, using her voice of saying what she wants and what she can declare a value versus what her husband thinks is valuable. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, the real issues are not my qualifications and credentials. The real issue is where is her voice to define in the marriage what she really wants to do? Does she even know what she wants to do? You know, maybe she's happy for the excuse to not go to the workshop. And, you know, how is power and authority shared in this marriage? And who's in charge of making decisions for what the wife will and will not do. And that's very common that, you know, we fight over pseudo-issues. And and the other problem in her fighting is that she's trying to change his mind about the workshop. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are two problems with that. One is he has a right to his thoughts and feelings about the workshop as much as she does. And the other problem is it's not possible. It's not possible to change another person's uh, thoughts or feelings if they don't want to change. So when you ask me about resistance, here's the real question. Why does Barbara engage in this ridiculous fighting with him? Why doesn't she go to her husband and say, look, you know, we see the workshop differently. You know, I understand you don't think it's worth it. I have a different view. It's important to me, and I plan to go. Mm-hmm. That is the question. Now, here's where the issue of resistance comes in, because there's always resistance from within and without. So if Barbara said that, you know, if she stopped the fighting and she said, look, the workshop is important to me and I'm going what do you think her husband's going to say? Do you think he's going to say, oh, how wonderful, Barbara. I'm so happy that you're being a clear and assertive (laughs) woman. You know, all the power to you. No, that's not how relationship systems work. Once you define a higher level of self, 
you get a counter move, a pushback reaction. So he might say, we don't know what he would do. I mean, first of all, he could hit her. I mean, she may not even be in a safe relationship, in which case she should not say anything that would put her in danger. Or he might say, um, well, you know, if you go to that workshop, um, um, I'm not giving you a penny. You know, I'm cutting off your bank account. Because we don't know, perhaps he controls the money. You know, she might not be uh, economically independent, and he might say, you know, go to the workshop, and I'm not giving you money to go visit your mom. Um, Or he might um, just act grumpy and, you know, we don't know. But the point is that that's where the challenge comes in, because that's where Barbara would need to either, you know, shuffle back to the broom closet because she can't deal, she thinks she can't deal with his reaction, or she would need to think about how to keep defining her position without getting defensive or attacking and without going back to the old pattern of accommodating. Like if he said, for example, I'm not giving you the money, then she might need to have another conversation where she would say, you know, I know that I don't bring a paycheck home, um, but I am an equal partner in this marriage. And it's not okay for me to be treated like a child with an allowance where I'm told what I can spend money on or not spend money on. Um, In other words, once you start making a change, as Barbara, for example, if she were going to make a change and decide that she would be asserting herself on things that matter, it's not one conversation. It's not one change. You have the challenge of being in a process of knowing the other person better and knowing yourself better and keeping, you know, on returning to the conversation. So the resistance is not really that you don't want to get the idea that you're the one that has to change. The resistance is in doing it. And in my new book, Marriage Rules, where I strip away all the theory and I give a hundred rules. And really, if the reader picks only three or four, um, they're going to have a different relationship. The rules are very clear and simple and easy to grasp and fun to read. It's, It's doing it and then staying on track. That is the human challenge because there is so much resistance um resistance to change is just a force in the universe and people might tell you they want you to be assertive they want you to be strong believe me they only want you to be assertive if they like what you're saying (laughs) only if it serves them right right um can i read a little passage from your book yes so in the dan- dance of anger, and I, I actually sent this out to my newsletter subscribers today because 
I think what happens so often is people want change. They're in so much pain and they want it. And so they they try to do a lot of things. And I thought this was key when I read it in your book, The Dance of Anger. And you say, if we want to change, it is important to do so slowly so that we have the opportunity to observe and test out the impact of one small but significant change on a relationship system. If we get ambitious and try to change too much, too fast, we may not change at all. Instead, we may stir up so much anxiety and emotional intensity within ourselves and others as to eventually reinstate old patterns and behaviors. Or we may end up hastily cutting off from an important relationship, which is not necessarily a good solution. And I thought that that was so key. It was such a such an important message for people to realize as they're going through this process of change, of developing their you know their inner self and getting clarity, and realizing that even when they change themselves, even though we really want other people to change, but when we change ourselves, there does become a ripple effect to other people. Absolutely, and the idea of changing slowly. When I write a book or I give a lecture, the people who get the most out of it are often taking one or two things Mm -hmm. and putting those into action. They're not, um, it really is the direction of travel that's important, not the speed of travel that's important, but the direction we're moving in, the direction of more self, uh, the direction of having the directions of being able to speak out and when something is important to be able to speak in a way that's not at the expense of the other person, you know, or putting the other person down, um, but being able to clarify, you know, this is how I see it, this is how I see it differently, and what is it like for you, Mom, that I see the situation with Dad so differently? So that you're not trying to change or convince your mother or whoever, which is impossible, but you're saying, you know, look, Mom, you know, you're his wife and I'm his daughter, so of course we see Dad differently, but let me tell you how I see it. You know, these things that may sound little are, are very very big things. And and the other good news is that sometimes a small change can make a very big difference Mm -hmm. in a relationship. And it takes so much courage to change, so much courage to change. And do you know where we get that courage? Where? From two places. We get the courage when the pain of the status quo just the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the fear of changing. So we get the courage sometimes from being in in pain and anger and despair. And we also, this is sort of paradoxical, sometimes we also get the courage to change from being in touch with joy, with our capacity for joy. I remember working with a woman 
who was living with a man who was alcoholic and doing nothing about it. I mean, he would do something, but he'd drop out. He'd go to AA, he'd drop out. He'd go to treatment, he'd drop out. And she lived with it, complaining and blaming for so long. She just wasn't ready um, to do anything different, which is fine, you know, Mm -hmm. because she wasn't ready. And one day, this is very interesting, she... One evening, she went to a concert, and she had a great capacity to be touched by by music in a way that, you know, sometimes music can touch us in a place where words don't. And she left this concert in touch with her capacity for just tremendous joy, and something shifted in her. And she went home and was able, you know, and it wasn't just one conversation, to tell her husband that she was no longer able to stay in the relationship mm-hmm. and feel good about herself or him or the marriage if he didn't um, go into inpatient treatment and and get a handle on this, that, that she couldn't stay. And what was important, because she had said this in anger a bazillion times, but this was different, her her words and her body, and this was a real bottom line position um, because she wasn't saying it in anger. She wasn't saying it as an ultimatum. She wasn't saying she had a million times, like, screw this, I'm out of here. And then <laughs> she, um, the joy she felt after the concert just made it impossible for her to keep going in the same way so that sometimes we find the courage to change because the status quo, we just can't continue with it. It's too awful. And sometimes we find the courage to change because we do something that puts us in touch with our capacity for joy. And every single one of you has that capacity. It just gets so buried. So when we do things that remind us of our joy and our courage, and our best self, that also can give us the courage to change. Interesting. Those were, that was a great story for us to understand the capacity for joy, as well as when you talked earlier in the interview about how the pain of not writing was too great. Exactly. So you continue right. to write, right? So these are <laughs> really, two Really, it's diff- a good parallel there. There we go. Well, Harriet, thank you so much for coming back. I, I could cont- talk to you for a whole nother hour and I just so appreciate your time and bringing this important message to women out there. So thank you so much. And thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you've been listening to How She Really Does It. My guest today is Dr. Harriet Lerner, and she is the author of the bestseller, The Dance of Anger. And also, I had done an interview previously about her book, Marriage Rules. Thanks for listening. You can sign up um, for my newsletter at www.howshereallydoesit and receive this interview as well as future interviews and transcripts to some interviews delivered directly in your inbox. Early morning, fog is lifting. She's in a row.